Hear now the word of the Lord, the very words of God, as, he is, as they are given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the fourth chapter, verses 38 through 41. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any, I'm sorry, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew what he, that he was the Christ. And may the Lord bless this reading of uh, his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Our Lord, we are so blessed in that so many ways... You reveal to us your work, the, the, the work of the healer specifically this morning. And may we be in awe as we see this unfold. May we see in our mind's eye every single aspect of this story. May we recognize the, the, the meaning, the, the, the symbolism behind it, the way that it reveals your work, your plan, and what you have been about ever since the fall. Lord, may, may we see that this morning. May we glory in it. May we glorify you for it. And may we be truly convicted that this is a message that the world desperately needs to hear as we talk about the work of the healer, in whose name we pray. Amen. As I said, um, sort of insinuated in that prayer, the scriptures are absolutely full of marvelous stories of redemption, of how God worked out his redemption. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we look at these two verses, especially 38 and 39. But let me take you back to the Old Testament for just a moment. In Earlier in the responsive reading, we, we sort of got the more technical side of it as Paul explained to us from start to finish the process of redemption. Well, let's go back and, and see it done in sort of allegorical form in a very familiar story. Now, I'm not going to tell you the story because you should all know it. It's the story of Moses and the Exodus and and how that is a picture of God's redemption. But what I want to do is I just want to point out some of the elements of that story and the principles that are behind it because we're going to see those same principles uh, as as we look at, at our text for this morning. Well, It starts where every one of these stories start. It starts with the people of God in a desperate and a helpless state. They're slaves in Egypt and they're under the oppression of the Egyptians. But God in his mercy and compassion for his people, he hears their cry and he raises up a deliverer in Moses and he sends his deliverer to Egypt to, and I hope you get the symbolism of Isaiah 61 through this too, because we're going to return to that verse. But he sends his deliverer to Egypt. 
Egypt to set the captives free, which is exactly what he did. And God authenticated the word that Moses had. Let my people go with mighty miracles. All those plagues that ultimately broke the back of Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. And they were glad, at least at that time, to see the people go. Well, of course, God not only led them out of Egypt, but he had a destination for them. He is completing the covenantal promise to Abraham. So he leads them to the Red Sea, and then they need to get across, but that's kind of a dilemma because that's the sea. And then Pharaoh changes his mind and sends the greatest army on the face of the planet at that time after them, pinning them against the Red Sea. And so in a beautiful microcosmic view of redemption, God saves his people. He parts the waters with a great miracle. He leads them through on dry land. And because evil is relentless and will not let the people go, but wants to bring them back into slavery, God shows that when he saves his people, he saves them and brings the waters of the Red Sea down to destroy the horse and the rider as Moses would sing after they got finished. Well, then, of course, he sustains them, he provides for them, and he leads them to Mount Sinai, where he provides them with his law so that they know how their relationship with him should be and how they should treat each other. He provides them with his presence in their midst, the tabernacle, with the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. He provides them with a method whereby they can still be in his relationship with him, even though they fail to keep his law. That sacrificial system with the substitutional sacrificial atonement that was represented there. And of course, he leads them after that directly up to the Jordan River where they're going to enter the promised land, the land that he had promised to Abraham so many years before because God is a God who fulfills his covenant. And that's exactly what the taking of Canaan is all about because it will be on that same land, that same place that so much later, that's when he is going to bring the one who will truly bring redemption into not just the Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion now. And that's where redemption is going to have its completion. So you see that beautiful flow of God's plan of redemption. Now, I want you to remember that in the back of your minds as we go through our text this morning, because I see that same beautiful redemption um, illustrated for us in the text that we have to look at. Now, we're, we're sort of running into a problem here in Luke. Uh, is getting more serious every week because he just keeps adding layer upon layer upon layer of, of the beauty of the way he is presenting the Messiah to us and the mission and purpose and the way that the kingdom is coming into being. Um, so I, I run into the dilemma that if I do the context justice, I'm not going to have time to talk about the new text. So let me sort of put it into its perspective very quickly, and forgive me for the speed here, but I, I don't want to dilly-dally on any one individual point, especially here in the fourth chapter. It started out with Satan trying to tempt Jesus in the desert to try and corrupt the Messiah, to corrupt who he was and to give him an alternative. You can still be king, you can still be Messiah, and you don't have to go to the cross. Well, of course, you know Jesus didn't fall for that. But that's why 
Luke fast-forwarded a year and brought us directly to the synagogue in Nazareth where Jesus is teaching from Isaiah 61. Because that passage, we'll return to it in a moment, tells us exactly who Jesus is as the Messiah and what kind of Messiah he's going to be. Well, of course, we saw that his hometown people got furious at him because he told them of the judgment that was actually upon them, wouldn't work any miracles for them, and they tried to murder him. They didn't get away with it because it's not his time. And so the scene shifts to Capernaum over on the northern shore, northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And there on another Sabbath, Jesus once again teaching in the synagogues is in the midst. We don't know what he's teaching, but we can assume we know what's in the hovering in the in the background is that Isaiah 61 passage. And as he is teaching, all of a sudden, a man who is in the synagogue has a demon all of a sudden wake up and with surprised indignation goes, ha, you know, who are, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? And that's the way they would love for you to see Jesus, just as Jesus of Nazareth, just a man. But then he lets it slip. I know that you're the Holy One of God. And we talked about that. I'm going to return to it as another important part of this because that's the first miracle of this day. And we're going to be later on in the same day. And so we're going to draw a comparison between those two. Now, there are two particular aspects of what I just sort of zipped through that I want to slow down. I want to revisit because both of them are important background to the story we're going to see. And as I've mentioned several times, the first one is that reading from Isaiah 61. Actually, it's not word for word. So let me read it to you in the way that Jesus quotes it in the fourth chapter, starting in the 18th verse. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then after he reads that, he he, creates a dramatic moment. He sits down and he looks at everybody and he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Meaning the one Isaiah is talking about is Jesus. Now, I hope you see the aspects of what was read in Isaiah that also showed up in that story from the Exodus and also showed up in that sixth chapter, I'm sorry, second chapter of Ephesians uh, that, that Paul gave us. That's that's the idea of redemption. But let me run through it really quickly for you and just remind you because I want this also to be in the back of your mind. First of all, he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. I am the Christ. I am the Holy One of God. And the demons are just about to verify that. He has anointed me. I have been set aside. I have a task. And I have been anointed to proclaim, to preach. That is central to the understanding of Jesus' ministry. And we're going to see more about that next week as we see the uh, the, 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 the importance 
importance of preaching to him. But here he says, I, I have been anointed to proclaim good news, the gospel, the kingdom of heaven is upon you and the demons beware because I'm throwing the gauntlet down and spiritual warfare starts. I have come to preach good news to the poor, not the poor materialistically, but the poor of spirit, those who aren't arrogant, those who are spiritually bankrupt and realize it and know that they need a savior. He goes on and says, I have come to proclaim liberty, freedom, release, forgiveness of sins to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind. Those who are captive are captivated by sin. That is the thing that is holding them in bondage. And he has come to open their eyes to that bondage. Most people who are in, in, incarcerated by their own sins don't even know it. Think they're, they're perfectly fine. And what a blessing it is when he comes to open the eyes of the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Specifically, he adds that. It's not part of Isaiah's quote in 61. It's from another chapter. He brings that in because he's about to throw a demon out. And he is going to remove those who... Well, of course, he was in Nazareth when he says this. But as far as Luke's gospel, it's very close. And he knows that he has come to release the oppressed from the, uh, the, the, the bondage of their oppressors. To remove their feet or their foot from their neck, if you will. And then finally to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the year of jubilee when all debts are canceled, when no matter how much red red ink is on your ledger, boy, it's all gone. And that is what the Messiah has come to do. So I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. What a beautiful presentation of God's intent in the redemption as we look at the illustration here that follows. Now, one last thing that I want you to keep in mind is what we studied last week. We saw that as Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, all of a sudden a demon yells out in the middle of it, apparently responding to what Jesus was teaching. And as I said earlier, says, have you come to destroy us, Jesus of Nazareth? Um, We know who you are, or at least I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Now, when we looked at that last week, I I focused literally on the demon, really, and, and, and his understanding of Jesus and what he didn't want us to know and what he sort of slipped up to tell everyone. And that is that as compassionate and loving as Jesus is, as the Savior and Redeemer of humanity, the lover of men and women, Jesus is the Holy One of God. And God is wrathful against our sins. And Jesus came as a substitutionary, sacrificial atonement. You can't remove that from the gospel and keep the gospel. Because of His wrath as God against our sinfulness, it is essential that Jesus goes to the cross. That's the reason the kind of Messiah Messiah that the devil wanted him to be would never work. Well, we're going to look at it a little differently this morning. I want to not look so much at the demon. I want to look at the man. And the reason for that is that we have two healings here. We have a spiritual healing that takes place in the synagogue. And now we're going to look at a seemingly physical healing that takes care in a domestic setting. And both of those are important if we are going to understand what comes next 
which is the one-two punch of apostling, the statement of what the ministry of Jesus Christ is. So all of this is just winding together as Luke continues to build this magnificent story. So I know that's an awful lot to keep in the forefront or even the back of your mind, but try to because it will add richness to this particular text, which it's time that we turn our attention to it. So join me again. We're only going to look at the 38th and 39th verses. I'll explain later why I added 40 and 41 um, this morning as well. But let's look at the 38th. Now, what Luke does is he sort of sets the scene for us in the 38th verse, and then the healing occurs in the 39th. So let's take a look at the setting of the scene. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, he obviously is Jesus. So let's go back to where we were. Jesus was in the synagogue on Saturday morning of the Sabbath, and he's teaching. Now, we saw in Nazareth the way that looked. We saw that he first stood to read the scroll from Isaiah 61. And then when it became time to teach or to exposit that word, he sat down. Now, interestingly, as we start this verse, he arose, which tells me he's still sitting down, which means he just finished teaching. Now, again, this is conjecture. But it's almost as if when the demon interrupted him, that that's exactly what it was, an interruption. You remember that Jesus rebuked the demon, and part of the reason he rebuked the demon is how dare you interrupt the teaching of the word of God. I am preaching the word of God Almighty, and you raise your voice and say that, that, uh, uh, that ha word of surprise. So... It looks to me as if after he casts the demon out and throws him wherever he he sends him, he goes back to teaching, you know, because that's the important thing. That's Jesus' ministry. And the healing and the casting out of demons is completely secondary. And if that's the only thing that you remember in a technical sense from this, please remember that. That is important as the casting out of demons and the healing of people was to Jesus, as compassionate as he was, it, it was secondary to the preaching of the word of God. Well, anyway, he arose and he left the synagogue and begins to make his way towards Simon's house. Now, literally, no one knows where Capernaum was. It was one of those cities that Jesus pronounced a curse on. And so completely were they destroyed that scholars still do not agree on the location of Capernaum. Uh, We'll talk about the archaeological find in a moment, but some still place it over on the eastern side of the Jordan near Bethsaida. Some back in the hills sort of behind or just north of the Sea of Galilee. But they have found and unearthed actually a very convincing little city that they pretty much think that is Capernaum. At, at least when you when you go to Israel, your tour guide is going to tell you this is Capernaum. He's not going to tell you anything else. But if that is indeed Capernaum, then there's a relatively well-preserved, as far as the rest of the city is concerned, a well-preserved synagogue. It's right there. 
and they've got some walls and some columns and things that, 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 are, that, that, that you can actually see where the synagogue is. Now, I am told that that particular synagogue was built in the 5th century A.D., around 400-something at that time. But if you look carefully, you'll notice that the substrata of the foundation is of a different color rock. They're, they're black almost. And so we're told that that was the original foundation when Jesus was there. So that would have been the place that he actually taught. So we're told that he left that structure and walked down what would have been a narrow road in the town towards Peter's house. Now, there's also a place that they say was Peter's house. And if you go there... um, you know, you have to be really careful. Those of you who have been to Israel know this. You have to be really careful about these so-called holy sites because really what it means is that some pope or some council sometime a long time ago said, hey, this is where it was. And so what the first thing they do is they build a gaudy church on top of it and it becomes the site. And so unfortunately, they're still doing that. This is not that old of an archaeological find, but they have built a chapel on top of what is supposed to be Peter's house. Now, at least they built this one on stilts, so you can still see the archaeological find. But I even question, and if you were there, you'd probably have the same thought that I had. You know, there's this huge house. I mean, everything around you is little bitty tiny squares like that. And, and all of a sudden, there's this big, gigantic house right near the beach, right near the, the ocean. And that's what they say that Peter's house was. But that's by far. Now, of course, we don't have the whole town there. But that's by far the biggest house in town. And, and for some reason, I just don't see Peter as being the wealthiest man in town. But regardless, if it is Capernaum, and if it is the synagogue, and if this is Peter's house, it's only about 50 feet from the synagogue. So you can visualize them leaving the synagogue and walking down that little street and walking into Simon's house. Now, the they would have been Jesus and Peter. His brother Andrew lived with him. And Mark tells us that James and John were also part of this little group that leaves the synagogue and walks down to Simon's house. Now, the purpose was lunch. That's what happened. I'm told that they finished the synagogue services about noon and, and then they had the Sabbath day lunch. Now, they would have already pre-prepared much of it so that work didn't have to be done on the Sabbath. But nonetheless, um, they would have a meal after the synagogue. And that's when these events take place. So he rises, he leaves the synagogue, he enters Simon's house and immediately is confronted with Simon's mother-in-law. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. So, let's just talk about Simon's mother-in-law. That kind of tells us a couple of things. One about Peter, another one about the mother-in-law. Well, first of all, it just tells us that Peter's married. It confirms what we read elsewhere, that Peter had a wife and, and actually used to travel with him to a degree. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? That's Peter. So obviously Peter was married. So this is a confirmation of something about his home life. Now, 
turning our attention to the mother-in-law, we can, we can, if this is conjecture, but it's calculated conjecture, we can come up with some conclusions about the mother-in-law. First of all, um, more than likely she's living there. We're, we're not told, and they're from Bethsaida, which is not very far away, but we're told that we're not told that she was visiting Peter on that occasion. So more than likely she lives there and we don't hear about a father-in-law. We, we don't hear about uh, Peter's wife's father. So we assume, as we assume with Joseph, Jesus' father, who just isn't mentioned anymore, that, that he's either, that he's probably died. And there, there, there were many reasons that death occurred early in those days. And the only reason I point this out is that would make Peter's mother-in-law a widow. And, and, and a widow occupied a particular class in those days. She was considered to be of the poorest and the neediest, the most dependent, and the most vulnerable of, of all uh, people in that society. You remember what James says when he talks about true religion. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, I don't think that Peter's mother-in-law is afflicted in this sense. She's probably pretty well taken care of by her extended family. But as a class of people, as a group, widows are just plain considered to be those who need help. That They, they didn't have a way to, to earn money. And, and if they didn't have an extended family like Naomi in the book of Ruth, then there's nothing they can do. The, the prostitution and to be a market lady was about all that was available to a widow. So they were terribly afflicted in those days. So... Even though Peter's mother-in-law might not be afflicted, she is still representative of those who are. And that, I think, is a very significant part of this. I'll bring that out in just a moment. Well, beyond the fact that she is helpless in this sense, we hear that she was ill with a high fever. Okay. Now, remember, Luke is a physician. So he's the only one who told us that this was a high fever or a great fever. And what that, that tells us a lot, a lot more than you might actually realize when you put it into the cultural context of the first century. Because unlike today, you and I know that a fever is the, the symptom of an underlying illness, that, that the, the fever in and of itself is not the illness. It can be caused by a bacterial infection, a viral infection, a sunstroke. I mean, there's a hundred things that a fever can be caused by. Well, not in that day, not in the first century. In the first century, a fever was seen as a disease in and of itself. It was seen as a sickness and so, therefore, when you were running a low-grade fever, it wasn't a fever. When you had 104, 105, and were just one step from dying, that was a fever, okay? So, in other words, it was an intense type of illness. In, in fact, Matthew, describing her condition, says that she had been thrown down by uh, this, uh, by, by this 
this, this uh, fever. She's off her feet. She's incapable, uh, probably unconscious in this situation. And the, in, the insinuation is that she is one step from the, 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 the doors of death because she has this great fever. Now, many scholars think she had malaria, the underlying cause of this. And that's a good guess because malaria was prevalent in those days. Um, that part of the Sea of Galilee, there's a lot of marshy areas where the Jordan kind of runs into the sea. Uh, and, and that was, of course, a breeding ground for mosquitoes that carry malaria. So it was prevalent in those days. So it might very well have been malaria. But that's not the way they saw it. They saw a fever as a disease in and of itself. Now, are you with me? The, the next step is because it's a disease, it's just like leprosy or, 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 or the flow of blood or, or other diseases that made the individual who had it ceremonially unclean. So, so Peter's mother-in-law, because of her disease, is ceremonially unclean, meaning she couldn't go to the synagogue, she couldn't go to the temple. She's an outcast until she either dies or she is going through a ceremonial cleansing so that she can be cleansed again by, um, uh, by the priest. Now, the Talmud is not biblical. This is the, the rabbi's writing. This is the one that says that, that it is unclean. But notice the dilemma that it puts Jesus in. Okay, It's the Sabbath. He's already healed one unclean person. Remember, it was the spirit of an unclean demon that he cast out. And now he's confronted with another unclean person that he's not supposed to touch or have anything to do with because she is spiritually unclean. I hope you're getting the imagery here, folks. I hope you're seeing what we're supposed to see, both with the man with a demon and the woman with a fever. They are unclean. They are diseased. They are helpless. They are vulnerable. They are dependent. And they are completely incapable of helping or saving themselves. That's the situation that we are supposed to see here, is that she is near dead. Now, what did we read earlier from Ephesians 2.1? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Well, guess what? This woman is the walking dead. She, she's alive. She's not dead yet. But for all intents and purposes, she is the walking dead. And that that's where we start this, because that is precisely where the healer enters the room. That is exactly where the great physician comes when a woman is in this desperate place with no way of fixing it herself. That is when we go to verse 39 and Jesus comes in. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Brothers and sisters, I think this is one of the most beautiful tender, compassionate scenes that we have in Scripture. That's the reason I want to take a little time just to, to, to illustrate it and bring it out. When the healer comes in, he stands over her. Now, again, Luke's the physician. 
So he understands what's going on. He sees Jesus as the great physician, the healer who takes the pose of the healer. Now, he didn't need to do that. All right, Jesus could have easily stood across the room if he wanted to, actually like he did with the demon, and just said, hey, fever be gone. And, and, and it would be gone. There was no need for him to come and hover over her. Matthew tells us that he touched her tenderly on the hand. Mark says that he took her hand and lifted her up. And brothers and sisters, I hope in the back of your mind, you're remembering what Brother Clayton read you earlier from Zephaniah, of the Lord rejoicing over you and singing. That's the way I see this, as a beautiful picture of redemption and salvation and grace and mercy as the healer comes in, hovers over the woman who is right at the very edge of death. Um, and, and, and let me back up for a second because I did kind of miss something. Uh, and, and I don't want to miss this. Uh, the very end of verse 38, they appeal to him on her behalf. I skipped over that and I don't want to because. Um, notice the language there. Notice the language of the way that those who are with Jesus or those who are in the room, probably most fervently Peter's wife, very concerned about the condition of her mother. But notice, notice that no one actually asks Jesus, will you heal my mother-in-law? I mean, this is the most detail we have in any of the synoptics that that he just comes out and says that, um, uh, that, that they appeal to him on her behalf. Mark just simply says they told him of her condition. Matthew doesn't say anything at all. Matthew doesn't even mention that anyone opened their mouth to ask Jesus to heal the woman. He just walks in sovereignly and heals her. Now, there's a point to this. There's so much talk today among false healers. It all depends on your faith. Now, I'm I'm not going to tell you that faith does not play a part in Quite a few of Jesus' healings. For instance, the leper who met Jesus coming down the mountains from the Sermon on the Mount. You remember him? He said, if you want to, you can cleanse me. Jesus said, if I want to, I'll cleanse you. Well, he showed that faith, he had faith that Jesus could heal him. Or sometimes it is faith that someone else expresses for the one who is sick. Like, for instance, the centurion whose servant was ill. And the centurion just said, hey, listen... Say the word, you don't need to come to my house. Or the Syrophoenician woman who wouldn't take no for an answer as far as her daughter was concerned. So yes, on many occasions there, there is a discussion of faith, but not today. Not on this day. Because the man who had a demon doesn't even seem to know that he had a demon. He's sitting in the synagogue and all of a sudden the demon wakes up. And he didn't ask for healing. There was no faith on his part whatsoever. And now the mother-in-law happens to be so sick that she probably can't even turn over. And we're not told that even those who are in the room says, Jesus, would you please work another miracle? We know you turned the water into wine. We know that you healed the centurion servant, the leper. We know that you did all kinds of work down in, in, in Jerusalem. Would you please heal our mother? No one asked that. They just said, look, we've got this situation over here with this woman who is sick. The point is this. This is a sovereign healing. Matthew has it right. Jesus walks into the room and he heals this woman. And that's it. 
because Jesus is in control of this because Jesus is the healer. And it's not just the physical healing that we're talking about. He came to heal souls, brothers and sisters. And that's what I see underlying all of this. Now let's go back to verse 39. And he stood over her and he rebuked the fever. Say what? How do you rebuke a fever? Now, we talked about that word last week, rebuke. It's a strong word. It, it, it means on a variety of things, strong disapproval, to censure, to reprove, to warn that certain course of action is going to bring consequences. But normally when someone rebukes or when Jesus rebuked someone, it was either a demon where he would cast out the demon like he did just an hour or so ago in the synagogue or a person, as he rebuked Peter when Peter tried to get in between him and the cross. But there are times when Jesus would rebuke inanimate things, things that aren't alive, like the wind and the waves. Remember that? He rebuked the wind and the waves, and all of a sudden they're perfectly calm. And here he rebukes the fever. So what does it mean when Jesus rebukes something like this? What is he actually doing? What's the underlying uh, sort of point or principle that is being expressed? Well, when Jesus rebukes in this way, what he is doing is he is expressing power and authority over that which he rebukes. For instance, when he rebukes the demon, he is he's expressing his authority, his power, and that his word becomes a command because Jesus has power over the demonic world of evil. Same thing with Peter. He's expressing his power and authority over his disciples and his sovereign intention. To go to the cross and nothing is going to get in between him and that substitutionary sacrificial atonement that is so necessary for the work of the Messiah. And when he uh, rebuked the winds and the waves, same thing. He's showing his power and authority over the, the elements, over nature itself. And so when he rebukes the fever, he's showing power and authority over A fever? Really? Do you think that's all that's here? Do you think that all Jesus is doing is saying, I rebuke you, fever, and I have power over everyone who has a fever. Now I don't have to worry about it because I have power and authority over that fever. You see, just like we know that a fever is the symptom of an underlying disease, Jesus knows that the disease is a symptom of, of the true disease. And the true disease is sin. And in a sense what Jesus is doing here. Is rebuking the sin. That is holding this woman in its clutches. And, and in fact back in Matthew 9. There's a story where they brought Jesus a paralytic. You may remember this. And, and Jesus looks at the man and has compassion and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Pick up your bed and go home. Well, of course, you know, the scribes and Pharisees, they immediately start calling him a blasphemer. And how can he do that? Only God can forgive sins. And he turns to them, and this is what he says. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, pick up your bed, arise, pick up your bed, 
and go home. You see, that's what Jesus is doing here. That's why he's rebuking the fever. He is rebuking that which he came to destroy. It wasn't just the demons. It was the very evil that holds all of us in its sway and separates us from God. It is the sin in our lives with a capital S. And Jesus rebukes it to show that he has power and authority even over that which separates us from God. Now, there's sort of a nuance here that I want you to see. I don't want you to miss this. I don't think I would have any trouble convincing most unbelievers that um, someone who is demon-possessed is possessed with something that's evil. Okay, they, they, they may deny that there's such a thing as demon possession, but if they would at least look at it at metaphorically, they would say, yes, that would be a clear indication. If I was possessed by a demon, then I would admit I would be evil. But not Peter's mother-in-law. Not the little old lady that lives across the street. Not that kind, sweet woman who bakes you cookies when, when you're not feeling good and, and has nothing but a good word to say to, any, to everyone. That person, you try to convince that person is wicked and wretched and poor and pitiable, you're going to have a fight on your hands. Well, Jesus rebukes the sin in his, Peter's mother-in-law's life. It has to show us, brothers and sisters, that it is that sin that destroys us. It is that sin that Paul means when he says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. It is that sin that Jesus, as the Messiah, came to open the eyes of the blind to show us that God in his holiness cannot and will not abide even one transgression because one transgression, one transgression against him brings with it an eternal punishment. That's why you need Jesus. That's why you need a savior. That's why you need the healer. The work of the healer. Well, anyway, notice what happens when he rebukes the fever. It left her. <laughs> the fever obeys him. Uh, it, it's just like the, the, the demon immediately left. It, it, it tells us something about this healing that Jesus does. Um, so let's take a look at, at, at what it says. It left her and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Okay, beautiful, kind of a spelling out of what happens when Jesus, the healer, does his work. First of all, it's immediate. Okay, it's immediate. There, 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 there's no question, there's no lag time. I mean, one moment she is close to death in this fever, and the next moment she bounces out of bed like she's a spring chicken and starts to serve people. Okay, it is absolutely immediate. There's no process by which they go. Now, granted... There are some examples of what appear to be healing that takes a while to develop. Like, for instance, when Naaman the Syrian, Elisha, told him to go and bathe seven times in the Jordan. He got upset. You know, come on. I mean, why do I have to go through all that? Or, or, or the man uh, in John 9, the man born blind, that Jesus spit on the ground, made, made mud out of the spittle, put it on his eyes and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which he does. And he washes in, and, and then he can see. Or the man who, when he was healed, blind man, began to see people and they kind of looked like trees to him at first, you know. And people say, well, that's because his eyes are kind of slowly developing. All of those you might interpret as... Taking time, not immediate healings, but John MacArthur makes the point, and I agree with him, that the process might take time. 
Just like the process of salvation in you might take a lifetime, but the healing is instant. It is instantaneous. When Jesus heals, man, it, it, it is done. It is an immediate healing. So the first thing we see is that it's immediate. The second thing we see, it's complete. I know that some of you have had bad fevers lately, okay, because you've suffered through the COVID virus. And, you know, I've I've pretty much heard the same thing from almost everyone. I was so tired. I was wiped out. I could not lift one foot or the other. I was so tired. The fever just absolutely wore me out. You can remember the last time you had a fever, even if it wasn't COVID. You weren't feeling all that great when the fever started to break. And if this woman has malaria or some other cause for this fever, then there are side effects. But they're not there. Immediately, completely and totally. When Jesus heals, it heals completely. She's out of bed. There's no residual. There's no tiredness. There's no weight. She doesn't roll back over and go to bed and say, Jesus, don't bother me now. Thanks for saving me, but don't bother me because I'm too tired. Immediately, there's a, there's a, a, a completion. And then finally, notice that there's a purpose. And she began to serve them. Immediately, she gets out of bed. And it's Sabbath, all right? And there's a bunch of men in the house. And she's leaving the entire work of serving lunch to her daughter. So she immediately jumps in and does what she ordinarily would have been doing. No leftover, but brothers and sisters, not just laying there in bed and doing nothing and saying, okay, just tell me when it's all done. There was a purpose in her healing. And there was an action that occurred after that healing. She immediately got up and started to serve them. I like the way Matthew puts this because it really kind of gets to the heart of it. She arose and began to serve him because that's what she's doing. She's serving the Lord. And that's the reason for the healing is to glorify God, enjoy him forever. So she goes right to it. Now, the reason I included these last two verses, 40 and 41, in our reading, let me just go ahead and reread them again so that they're fresh in your mind. Now, when the sun was setting, now that means the Sabbath is over, all those who had anyone who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of the many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Now, the reason I included those, uh, it's, it's sort of as a punctuation mark, an exclamation mark at the end of these two healings. I want you to notice that, that it's not an isolated incident, that this is the beginning of a healing ministry that is going to go on. But we're going to return to these two verses next week and start in the 40th because this is the beginning of what I have said before, the one-two punch of apostling. Because it was a, a ministry of compassionate healing. But that's not the main focus. The main focus is the preaching of the word. And that is going to come out as we look at that next week. That's the coming of the kingdom is the preaching of the word of God. And that is essential to what Jesus did. But here it shows that these aren't isolated incidents. And that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. That Luke understood the difference between healing the infirm and healing those who had a demon. Now, brothers and sisters, I could have taken several venues with this as far as applying it, making it, bringing it home to us. 
Uh, in fact, most of the commentators that I read, they, their focus uh, as far as really applying the passage was entirely on the miracles that Jesus was working. And the reason being that in Luke's book, this, these two miracles done on this Sabbath are introducing that theme. And so there, there's a discussion of miracles and actually a comparison to the way Jesus and the apostles worked miracles and how that is totally absent from today's false healers. I'm actually going to push that conversation to the after church. Um, it, interestingly enough, it's very close to what we're talking about with the apostles in the, the, the fifth chapter of Acts. Um, and by the way, if you're watching in on that, if you're at home and you're a little frustrated with the audio of that particular uh, um, um, production, we had some uh, technical issues with the sound, uh, just tune in for the after church because we'll be going over some, not, not completely the same things, but we will be repeating some of the things that I talked about on Wednesday night as we talk about those miracles. But that's not the direction I want to take. It, it, it's not what impresses me the most. What impresses me the most about these two healings, and especially in the way that Luke has brought them about, is that we have such a glorious illustration of God's redemptive purpose and the way that he heals. And the actual work of the healer, as I said, is not healing the body, but healing the soul. Now, I want you to notice something. Every story or every example I've given you this morning, they all start the same place. Whether it is Paul in the second chapter of Ephesians, whether it is the story of the Exodus, whether it is the demon-possessed man, or whether it is Peter's mother-in-law, they all start the same place. And this is an essential place to start, and it is the place that modern Christendom has removed from the gospel. And therefore, the gospel loses so much of its power because we don't start where Scripture starts. And where that is, is with the children of Israel enslaved to an evil overseer. What it starts is for us to be dead in our trespasses and sin, as Paul says, or to be completely consumed by a demon who is in control and you don't even know that he's in control because you're blind to it, or a woman who is literally at the edge of death with a serious, intense fever. Regardless, we all start in every image of redemption in the gospel with the horrible, horrid state of humanity. The fact that we are sinful with a capital S that separates us from God and that because God is holy and because he is just, there must be a, a, a retribution. There must be con uh, condemnation. There must be some kind of a penalty for sinning against a holy God. That's where every single story of redemption begins. How is it possible that you can remove that from the equation when that is exactly where it is. Jesus says anyone who practices sin, anyone, and that includes every single one in the universe or in this world is what we're talking about. Every single one of us practice sin. So therefore, he says whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. Just to remind you of what Paul said, you were dead. You were dead. You weren't just sick. You were dead. 
in your trespasses and sins. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, it was now at work in Paul's day, it is now at work in our day. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That means you, that means me. Every single one of us lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, you may not see yourself as demon-possessed. You may not see yourself as dead. But let me tell you, Jesus covers all, or Luke covers all the bases here when he says that Jesus hovered over and healed Peter's mother-in-law. Because there's none of us that's any better than that, than that, that woman who is obviously a caring and a thoughtful woman and probably has a relationship with Jesus because Jesus, that was his his. his home of operation was Capernaum. So there's no one here who can say they're absolved from the kind of a person that Peter's mother-in-law was. And yet, Jesus rebukes the fever. See, the same situation exists in every single one of us, brothers and sisters, every single one of us. And this is for you two friends. If you're not a believer and you have not given your life to Jesus, then you stand condemned before a holy God. I know that is harsh. I know that is rash. And I know that you don't like to hear it, but it is the truth. That's what I'm here to share with you is the truth. And it would have been horrible. Oh my goodness, how horrible it would have been if that's where God left it. We would be deserving of that condemnation. Yes. But it would have been the most fatalistic, depressing kind of view of life that we could possibly have. But that's not where God left it. That's not where he left us. That's where Paul takes us in Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that is the compassionate mercy and grace of the healer. And that's what he came to do, was to heal those who are in desperation, those who cannot help themselves, those who are poor in spirit, bankrupt spiritually, not the arrogant, not the self-righteous, not those who think they have the world by the tail, but those who recognize that their sins will condemn them and recognize their need for a Savior and turn to Jesus and give their life to him in complete and total belief. That, my dear friends, is the only, only way between here and heaven. But that leaves me with this picture that I want you to see. See if you can follow this. Because, at least as far as where our story is, that's precisely where the healer shows up. Okay? That's where the healer shows up. And, and, and he comes And he hovers over you. And he looks upon you with love and compassion. Even though you're lost in your trespasses and sins. Even though you're at at enmity with him. Even though there's no love for him in your life whatsoever. He leans over you and hovers over you with compassion and joy. And he sings to you. He sings salvation. He sings redemption. He sings healing. 
Because in him is the healing of God. And that's what he came to do. We all have different demons. Mine was alcohol. 20 years I fought it. Tried my best to stop. Couldn't do it. It had me. I was captive. I I was totally captivated by that. It had me completely under its control. And when Jesus came and sang over me, I didn't hear the music. I wish I had. But I didn't hear the music, but I recognized something. All of a sudden, something changed in my life. When we talk about the healing of Jesus, it was immediate. When we talk about his redemption, it is immediate. It was immediate with me. One moment I'm a drunk, the next moment I'm not. Now, I had absolutely nothing to do with that. I didn't call him. I didn't ask for him. I didn't love him. I didn't praise him. I wanted nothing to do with him. And he, in his sovereignty, came to me and he healed me. You see, when the healer comes and he sings over you, an amazing thing happens. The arrogant one becomes humble and broken. The rich become poor. The people who think they're rich become spiritually poor. The self-righteous become penitent. The ones who need no one all of a sudden become dependent. All of that taken away because what the healer does when he instantly saves you is he, he takes that old soul of yours out and he throws it away because it's no good. It's that enmity with God and he puts a brand new one in you. One that is made to hold the Holy Spirit of God with his law written on the inside and he makes you a new creation. You're born again. You're a new creation in Jesus Christ. That's what happens when the healer sings over you with joy. my place again. You got me all all worked up. When the healer shows back up, that's what he does. He he sings us into that incredible place where we recognize that we need him. It's immediate. Now, some of you might say, you know something, it took a long time with me. You know, some of you might say, well, it's really been a journey of years after years growing closer and closer to Jesus. Don't, don't, don't mistake something. That's the process. The process occurs when Jesus heals you. It's immediate. In fact, if you really want to know when you were healed, the Bible tells you it was before the foundations of the world were set. When God looked upon you, loved you, sang about you, and wrote your name in the book of life. That's how deeply he loves you. That you have been his since before the foundations of the world were born, were created. The second thing that we learned about the way Jesus healed is that it's complete. It's full. It's it's final. It's eternal. There's no reason that you need to continue to find reasons to be healed. You don't need to go take a mass because the mass says they, I sacrifice Christ over and over again. You don't need to pay for your sins through penitence. You don't need to try to press, impress God through your good works. Now, if your faith is real, James tells us, you are going to have good works. You're going to have those works. But if it's not real, then you're not going to work. It doesn't. The works themselves do not save you. 
There's a plan that God has for you. And this is what we read in Ephesians. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so therefore, there is a completeness that occurs when you're saved. What did Jesus say? If the Son of Man saves you, you're what? Or if he frees you, you are free indeed. And of course, that's what we continue to read. Notice the way that Paul puts it. Your salvation, when Jesus heals you, is complete and total and final. When he died on the cross, were the last words he said, to tell us, die, it is finished. It's done. It's completed. Your sins have been forgiven forever. Those are the ones you've already committed. Those ones you're committing now, the ones you will commit until the time you die and are glorified and go to be with him, if indeed you are his. And Paul gives us such an assurance. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. That is a complete salvation and one that no one can take away from you. Because you didn't save yourself, folks. If you saved yourself, you can lose it. But if you didn't save yourself, if it was the healer who healed you, then you're healed indeed. As Jesus himself said in John 10, I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Brothers and sisters, when the healer sings over you with gladness, you are his forever. But that's not where it ends, is it? Peter's mother-in-law didn't roll back over to the wall and say, don't bother me, I'm, 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 I'm tired. She jumped up, and as Matthew said, she served him. And that's what we're called. Oh yes, Jesus has given you a new life. We read in Jeremiah, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope, Yes. But as I just read you from Ephesians, at the same time, he says that I have works, good works that I want you to do. There's a kingdom that needs building. There are things that I want you to accomplish. And in fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith says it beautifully. What is your chief end? What is the fact that you were here for? Why did the healer heal you? To glorify God. To thank Him, to praise Him, to worship Him, to honor Him with the rest of your life, day in and day out. And to enjoy Him for all eternity. That is what you have been saved to, brothers and sisters. To continue the work that our Lord started. In a sense, to continue the work of the healer. So what is that work? What is the work that He has left us to do? Now, the mother-in-law jumped up and served Him. Well, yeah, that's a good place to start, to jump up and serve him with all that you have, every bone, every fiber in your body. To step away from this world that will corrupt you and move into a time when you're, you're 100% in the service of our Lord. But I think that also in that is, is the idea of a commission. Because, you, you know, when uh, 
when we tell people about the healer, we're kind of involved with that process. We're once removed, if you will, meaning that we're not doing any healing ourselves. No one leads anyone to Christ. That's, That's a misrepresentation. All we can do is tell people about the healer. And too often we think that the gospel is the technical aspect of what redemption is. We talked about that last week. The fact that there was sacrificial substitutional atonement on the cross, propitiation, expiation, and righteousness all through Jesus. He died, went into the grave, raised on the third day. God said that this is my beloved son and I, I will accept his sacrifice on, uh, for your, uh, on your behalf. Yes, that's the mechanics of the gospel. But the gospel is to tell people about the healer. To tell them that there is a solution for your disease. That that which you're focusing on is the symptom. That that there's a disease that underlies it. And unless you cut to the quick of the disease, you'll never be healed. And there's only one who can do that. There's only one who expresses power and authority over sin. And that is Jesus. So let's get with it. Let's get with it. There's a world out there that's desperately sick. You don't have any lack of people to talk to about. So get on out there in whatever sphere the Lord opens up to you, whoever he leads you to, and tell other people about the work of the healer. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for these beautiful pictures that we get out of Scripture. They're just glorious. Um, (laughs) And to think that you have been putting this together since the foundations of the world and and in our time since Genesis 3.15, that this great salvation has been something that you're piecing together and bringing. And you give us these marvelous illustrations and we can look at each other and we can look at our own lives and we can actually see this exact same thing happening. It gives us such a great faith in you and in your word. And I pray that the effectiveness of this word will be something that you will use for your glory and for the growth of the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.